Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about digital declarations and social media realities, communicating with civility in the ethers and beyond. My first guest is Luvi Ajayi. We are talking about Lovey Ajayi's new best-selling book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. Lovey Ajayi is an award-winning writer, pop culture critic, she is the comedic voice behind the popular blog AwesomelyLovey.com, which has caught the attention of the likes of Shonda Rhimes and Ava DuVernay for both her scandal recaps and social commentary. Lovey is also a digital strategist, noted speaker, and the executive director of The Red Pump Project, a national organiza organization raising awareness about the impact of HIV AIDS on women and girls. Lovey was born in Nigeria and now lives in Chicago. Welcome, Lovey. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Let, let's, let's get busy with your book because you've got some wonderful topics that you are writing about and that we have all experienced. And I think that's what makes this such an interesting and fun read. Let's talk about something called the dinner Scrooge, and we all know one. Oh, so the dinner Scrooge, so group dinners are very painful, as you know, because anytime the bill comes, somehow somebody's always short. We always come up like $50, $60 short. And the dinner screw, does, I, I, I talked about how there's three types. And there's one, the person who orders everything on the menu, and then when the bill comes, they're like, we should all split the bill. Uh, no, I ordered a salad, and you ordered eight drinks and five entrees. We're not splitting this bill. <laughs> there's also the person who somehow always leaves before they pay. They always forget to pay before they have to hustle away. And then there's a the person who has to calculate their meal down to the penny, and they're like, that's what I'm going to pay and not much else. So, yeah. You know, what I find interesting about that, that, that dinner Scrooge is the calculator usually ends up being the bank. So that one person who's trying to figure out who owes what ends up being the financier for the shortfall. Do you, do you experience that? Oh, absolutely, because the person who actually volunteers to say, I'm going to figure out the bill, is typically the person who just wants to have everybody ready and set. So they're the fixer automatically. So then everyone leans on them to also fix the shortage of the bill. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about another interesting subject, that racism is for a-holes. And we all know this, by the way, but you have got your own special twist on it. Absolutely. I think it's very important to talk about racism and what it looks like. And I really talk about how it 
people always think it looks like, you know, a Klansman, but honestly, a lot of it is more insidious than, than that. Yeah, yeah. And and certainly this country is being challenged to take a hard look at what we're putting out there in terms of how we relate to other cultures. And really, I think it's about taking a look in the mirror. You know, we're talking about judgment. And I think the certainly the outcome of the recent election is a re- reflection or a projection of the collective consciousness, which is frightening. Right. I mean, I feel like we all learned a lesson this last week in terms of really the country that we're living in and a lot of people who kind of denied that we still had a problem in, of, of, of racism in this country now can no longer deny it because it's in your face and you see that half the country high-fived somebody who ran a campaign that was based on hate. Yeah. I, I want to share a little story. I have a uh, daughter who's in college and her best friend is of Latin African-American descent. And she was telling me that after the election, she had gone out with her her friend and some young men had accosted the girls and said that the president said it was okay to grope them. Oh, wow. And how did your... Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Well, my daughter, who's got, you know, got that lippy voice from me, uh, just let these boys have it. And I just I was so proud of her. I said, you know, Kayla, you have got to start using that voice because up until now, she was very passive about politics, politics. Mm-hmm. She wasn't interested. And this has gotten her fired up. So I say out of uh, a bad thing, sometimes we are now f- being able to fire up the next generation of activists or people who use their voices and their intellect for the greater good. Absolutely. And I think it's really important for people to start using their voice, even when it's especially when it's difficult. I think now more than ever, people who are in a majority group of any sort, who have any type of privilege, have got to start using it for the betterment of marginalized people. Yeah, well, you know, that that that's what we've been taught. I mean, many of us uh, have, have been taught that the more we have, the more social responsibility and obligation we have to do good and pay it forward. Right, but you'd be very surprised, and actually, this is why I'm judging us, you'd be very surprised about how many of us don't believe that, don't have the the sense of obligation for service. Yes, but, you know, I think that that comes from fear. You know, it's a very fear-based mentality that if I am generous with my service, generous with my heart, generous with my time, that somehow it's going to diminish my power, when in fact it's Mm -hmm. absolutely the opposite, right? Absolutely. I feel, I feel like we need to be, to understand that the more we we use our work for the betterment of somebody else, the better our work gets. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, one of your favorite things, which is social media. And, and, and why I want to talk about social media is because you have a piece or you've written about that your Facebook is my favorite soap opera. And I, I think this also touches upon the news-ish value of social media. I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, I get my news from social media, including our president-elect, by the way, people. We, I mean, social it's media news-ish. is very important because it's the first thing, honestly, most people roll over and pick up their phones. So the first thing you're seeing in the morning is content from your feeds. And that's why we, are end, up, we end up being um, influenced by it. We end up being affected by it. So, yeah, it's a huge part, and which is why I have, a, I have a section in this book about social media. 
Yes, you have a, 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 a quite a good one. I mean, you, some of the some of the, the uh, pieces are entitled, for example, hashtag hashtag number one hashtag hashtag hate hashtag your hashtag hashtag abuse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hashtag I hate your hashtag abuse. I started that section with that specifically because of how much I hate it. You know, people using forty seven hashtags in a picture, and I'm just like, but why? I can't read it. It's like, okay, this is now another language. And I need exactly. a translator. The translator. And also, it's just like obnoxious to look at. Yeah. And what about dumbed down news? Because this is where I go into the newsish category, you know, where it's so simple that we're really missing the point of what's going on. I have a chapter on dumbed down news because I noticed how social media, even though we have all this information at our fingertips, we somehow still don't do research, and we're somehow still ill-informed. Yeah. What about for shame, get some e-behavior? Because this is something you really focus a lot on, is that sort of ether etiquette. Oh, yes, e-behavior. It's like the people who randomly will flirt with you on LinkedIn. And just like, of all places, it's like walking to a conference room at work and being like, hey, you want to go on a date? It's so inappropriate. <laughs> and I talk about how we use the selfie culture, people doing selfies at funerals. It is just no. like, we've got to do better. Yeah, we've got to do better. We've got to be better. And, and, and this is really what your manual, what your book challenges us to do. These essays really are so beautifully provocative. Here's another one that I think is really uh, important to talk about. Rape culture is real and it sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the example you just even used, I mean, the fact that our new president-elect was caught on camera talking about how he went to grab a woman by her, by her nether regions. And, it's, and people will still swear up and down that, oh, no, rape culture is not a thing. Oh, you're just overreacting. We're not. Women are walking in the streets not feeling safe because men feel like they're entitled to our bodies. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen, America is not one big locker room. Oh, my gosh, it's not. And even locker right? rooms are not one big locker room, because after a certain age, you should know better than to say certain things. So the fact that we are living in a world that somebody can walk up to somebody else and say, hey, our president said this is OK, I'm stunned by it. Well, and he didn't say it was okay. I mean, here's this sort of twisted logic of all of this. You know, I, I think that we have a condition, certainly in this president-elect, who basically saying, do as I say, not as I do, who's not yep. living by the golden rules or the example of good conduct, of being a good citizen, a good doobie. Actions speak louder than words any day. So Yes, ma'am. Yes, you absolutely lead by example by what you do. So you can't say, hey, don't do what I'm doing. If you're doing it, you're saying it's okay for me to do it, too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're going to need to go to a break. But before we do, I want to give a plug for the Red Pump Project. Tell us about the organization and the great work that you are doing with it. The Red Pump Project is a nonprofit that I co-founded seven years ago. And uh, it's we, we raise awareness about the impact of HIV and AIDS on women and girls. And I started with a friend of mine because I find out that one of my friends had 
20 cousins who were living with her grandmother because their parents passed from AIDS-related complications. And for me, it was one of those things I was like, wait a minute, AIDS is still a problem? I didn't know. I hadn't heard about this in a long time. And I started digging deep, and we wanted to really understand that a lot of women are living in silence and shame about it, and we don't want women to have to deal with the stigma. And also, we don't want women to become infected if they're not. So we do workshops around prevention, around education, and essentially we are the safe space for people to know that, okay, you're not alone here, and we're listening. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with Lubby Ajayi and about her new book, I'm Judging You, The Do Better Manual. To learn more about all of Lubby's work, please go to lubby.org. On Twitter, she is at Lubby, and on Facebook, guess what? It's Lubby as well. And that project is the Red Pump Project. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about digital declarations and social media realities, communicating with civility in the ethers and beyond. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest today, Luvi Ajayi. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. So, Lovey, prior to the break, we were talking about the Red Pump Project, which is your nonprofit that is helping raise awareness about the impact of HIV and AIDS AIDS on women and girls. Um, We were also talking about some of your essays, which make such fun commentary on life, just life. Let's talk about another one, because there's one in the fame section about so you're kind of a big deal on the Internet because, you know, for those of us who are not in the know, and I'm just really seeing the Internet sensations, I'm focusing me on, my attention on what's going on on the Internet. There is a whole other Internet wood, right? It's not Hollywood. It's Internet wood. <laughs> yes. There, you know, because of social media being so big, of course, a lot of people have come up in the space and are now kind of celebrities in their own right. I mean, I'm someone that who's, who's benefited from social media space and, so I definitely understand. Part of that I make fun of myself, too, is just how a lot of times people take it very seriously, their online fame, and I make yeah. fun of them for doing it. Yeah, if we are not our social media personas. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is the dilemma that I see. At the end of the day, the people that are going to show up for us when life goes south and in crisis mode are not necessarily the ones that are out there, but the ones that are next to us. Yeah, I think it's also important to put it in perspective. It's understand that you can absolutely build solid, genuine relationships online, but if the person who's your bestie is somebody who you know on Facebook and you don't even have their phone number, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem, and that's an illusion, Right? I mean, things are not what they seem. So my, 
I always talk about people taking what they're doing offline is from activism to friendships. You can start something online any day, but don't leave it online to where if somebody deleted your Facebook account, you'd be cut off from that person. A lot of us don't realize that how little we've really connected with people in real life until things like that happen where it's like, oh, my gosh, this person deleted their Facebook account. I don't even know how to reach them now. That and what about if there's a power outage? A power Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> then we're really, then we're really sitting alone in the dark. <laughs> exactly. You know, so it's like we have to start putting it in perspective and understanding what social media really is and how we can parse it out. For some people, it's their entire lives. Everything is social. Everything from the moment they wake up to the end of the night. I mean, so it's one of those things that's like, what are we really doing? Yeah, yeah. And, and I love that you challenge us to think about it and act on it and, and to and to just do better with it. Um, you've got a, uh, an essay in part one under life that says, when Bayhood goes bad. Talk about that. Oh, goodness. When Bayhood goes bad is um, the essay I wrote about how sometimes we know people or sometimes we are those people who make horrific relationship decisions. And, you know, a lot of times we date people who we should not date because they have certain skills, and we're like, oh, man, or we see it happening to one of our friends, and we're just like, okay, this is terrible. Yeah. But when we see, when we notice there's a train wreck on the way, I mean, it doesn't obey, obey, like, alert, alert, danger, danger, danger. If we go to brunch and I see it happening... I can maybe comment, but, you know, some people are so deep in love or lust that you just know they're, they're not going to receive it. Yeah, that's true. Those love lights are pretty powerful, huh? It is. <laughs> All right, moving on to culture. I want to talk about Nobody Wins at the Feminism Olympics. Love this title. My chapter on that really is talking about Feminism, the word that comes with it, the baggage that comes with it, and why some people don't identify with it. And I do, in spite of all of those things. And I talk about, really, what has feminism done and how can it do better? Yeah. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing about feminism. And and certainly women have come a long way. And that glass ceiling it is shattering very rapidly. But the reality of it is many of us were never told that we were anything less. And so we're kind of scratching our heads like, what do you mean we can't? Yeah, I think it's really important to just, again, perspective is everything. Um, Yeah. And I think that one thing that we don't do well is really prioritize what's important and what's not. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. You've got um, another essay in that same category. And here we go with those hashtags again. And this one is putting a big smile on my face. As a, as a, as a spiritual person, it's putting a smile on my face. Hashtag fix it Jesus. Hashtag bind it Buddha. Hashtag amend it Allah. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yes, that chapter on religion for me was probably one of my favorites, I would say, in terms of just helping me also work out a lot of my issues with religion. And I'm a lifelong Christian. I've been a Christian since I was born. I'm 
I live, I mean, I, I am part of a family that's super spiritual, but we have to start admitting that a lot of things in Christianity, Christianity has done a lot of damage around the world, and organized religion in general has too. So this chapter, I explore that, and I talk about why, even in spite of all that, I still consider myself a Christian, um, similarly to the whole feminism chapter. But, yeah, I think it's really important to see that we're all connected. And even if you don't believe in a higher being, there feels like there's more than just us here. There's some energy that's directing our our presence. Yeah. It, I, I, two things come to mind, or two words come to mind when you say that. It's like, hashtag, amen, we are all connected. Absolutely. And that is... That is huge. M- moving on, back to social media, because here's another great essay. Real G's move in silence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm talking about the overshare world of ours. We, oh my goodness, like, we know so much about the people we follow online that it's sometimes like, wow, I didn't even need to know that about you. Um, and again, part of it comes down to people thinking Facebook is their therapist couch. (laughs) Well, you know, for many it is, you know, I do see a lot of, um, testimonials going on in Facebook. I I mean, a lot, you know, people really doing some serious core dumping out there on the ethers and maybe that, but maybe that's their place. You know, it's, it's, uh, they can, they can leave it online and walk out into their lives. I mean, that's the flip side of it. I think there's value in sharing our world with each other. There definitely is that value, but it's like a thin line between overshare and vulnerability. Yeah. Well, speaking of vulnerability, this book has really catapulted you from the internet and your fame and recognition that you have online and out there in the ethers to the public stage to those people that might not necessarily have ever discovered you. And how is that shift affecting you, the success of the book being a New York Times bestseller? Uh, one, I get less sleep because I've been on this. I've been on the road since September 13th when my book dropped. Um, but I don't, I'm not going to allow it to change who I am and change the work that I do. I think it's, I, I've welcomed um, the love and the feedback that my book has gotten because it's definitely blown my expectations, but I also, again, I keep perspective and understanding that, okay, the work got me here. I got to keep doing the, the work now. Yeah. And I think that's the point uh, of everything that you write. You know, your epilogue in the book talks about do something that matters. And this is what I see that, that you are doing. You are taking your unique, sassy, moxie voice and doing something for the greater good. And I applaud you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is this, this is good work. And, you know, it's like ha, ha, these these stories, these essays that Lavi Ajayi has written really are touching on the pulse of what's going on in America and, and around the world and issues that we wrangle with as women, as mothers, as wives, as partners, as professional people. And it's not just for the bays. It's for everybody about, you know, do better, be better, go out and do something that makes a difference. And I, um, I, I can't wait for more, Lovey, because I know that there's, there, there is a lot more of this inside of you. Thank you. Like, people have already been asking me about book two. I'm like, whew, 
all right, let's finish this tour first. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be standing afterwards, right? Right. Yeah. But that's an honor for people to even be asking about that. Well, you know, you've got it, girl. You've you've got that sharp wit and your finger on the pulse that I think is making people stand up and take notice. Um, We are nearly out of time, um, but before we go... What's the one thing that you're going to do for yourself today to make yourself happy? You know what? I'm probably going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Lovey Ajayi is going to get some Z's to make herself happy. I, I love that. I love that. Let me give you contact information out once again. Um, the best website to reach you, Lovey, in all your endeavors is lovey.org. Is that true? Absolutely. It will lead you to everything else. To Oh, yeah to lead you to the love, lovey.org. On Twitter, that handle is at lovey. And on Facebook, the page is lovey. The book, once again, the New York Times bestseller, no less, is I'm Judging You, the Do Better Manual. My guest today has been Lovey Ajayi, and I want to give you a shout out of love, love, lovey, because this is great work. Thank you so much for being with us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back with our next guest. Did you know that Harvesting Happiness travels? Lisa delivers unique on-site mental fitness programming at corporations, universities, and organizations around the world that boosts morale, creates positive change, and improves well-being. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to connect and learn more. Continuing our conversation about digital declarations and social media realities, communicating with civility in the ethers and beyond, my next guest is Professor Russell Goleman. Today we're talking about how we make decisions, how we behave, and a whole host of of other uh, topics that weave into our theme of civility connection and social interaction. My guest today is Russell Gallman, who is an assistant professor of behavioral economics and decision sciences in the Department of Social and Decision Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Professor Gallman, Eric, make a note there. Professor Goldman combines economics, psychology, and mathematics to develop theories about why people make the choices they make. He is known for his behavioral decision research on the topics of belief-based utility and on the topic of belief-based utility and his behavioral game theory research on the topic of strategic decision-making in social interactions. His pioneering interdisciplinary research has been published in academic journals in economics, psychology, and decision-making. Russell, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Oh, this is this is great. We had a, a a bit of a time finally scheduling our time due to natural disasters that have occurred in the Cal- state of California. Let's just jump right in and talk about um, what behavioral economists are focusing on right now, because economy and money go hand in hand. But your research is indicating there's something more. Yeah, I, I mean, behavioral economists are generally concerned with 
um, describing what people actually do in economic situations. And um, traditionally, economists have assumed that people sort of selfishly care about money and that's it. And I don't even think they ever really believed it. It just made the model simple. Um, but now there's lots of economists who are recognizing that people care about lots of other other things. So they care about um, um, what kind of person they are, their identity. Uh, they care about following social norms. They care about whether other people like them. And they care about other people, too. So they're not always selfish, but, but they want other people to um, be well off, too. Um, sometimes they can even be spiteful, too. And you got to watch out for people like that. Well, I want to go back to the to the fourth thing you mentioned was about caring about other people, because I think that um, many of us look at the world that we live in today and think that we're in it for ourselves. Everybody is just looking at where they can get um, the upper advantage. And really what you're saying is that you're seeing that there is this circling back to to the tribe and taking care of one another. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um and, and there's lots of research on the ways in which we care for, for other people. Um, so, so there's a very simple game that's been studied academically. It's called the dictator game. Um, it's called the dictator game because it's a game where only one person gets to, gets to sort of make the decision for everybody. Um, that person gets to be called the dictator. And that dictator is just sort of handed a pile of money and is told, you know, split this up however you want um, among the groups. So sometimes it's just two people, so it's just you and somebody else. Um, and uh, economists might have thought that if you give somebody a bunch of money, they'll just say, oh, thanks, I'll keep it. But lots of people, when they're given the money, they say, oh, I'm going to split it 50-50. It just seems like the fair thing to do. Talk about how you study behavioral economics. Uh, economics. Like, Talk a little bit about the, the ways you do your research, because you said the dictator game, but I'm sure there are more ways. Yeah, so, so um, research is in behavioral economics has um, both uh, theoretical and empirical components. Um, so there's usually an interplay where um, somebody will run an experiment and you'll discover that people don't do the thing that economists traditionally thought they did, but they, they do something else. So economists traditionally would have thought people keep all this money, but they discover when they run this experiment is that they actually share it, some of the money, that, that they care about perhaps fairness. Um, so then you discover something in an experiment and then um, a lot of my research is on the theoretical side saying, how can we explain what people do? So we try to create a mathematical model where we make some assumptions about what people actually care about that tries to explain the results of the experiments. So you might assume that people care about um, how well off other people are, or you might assume that people also care about um, their responsibility for other people. So, um, you know, we, we do think that people care about other people, um, as evidenced by this game. At the same time, we also see that, that people give some amount of money to charity, but um, certainly not 50% of their, their wealth to charity. So there's something different about giving 50% of this money that an experimenter hands you to somebody else in a game and actually giving 50% of your actual wealth to charity. And so um, people care about other people, but they also care about feeling like they're, they're being fair to other people and not just sort of giving away all their money to charity. Um, so so what, what I do is I, I come up with theories that try to um, explain what people are, are thinking, what they care about when they make decisions. And then we do more experiments to try to test um, do the predictions of these theories actually, actually come true. And how does decision making vary by age and gender? 
Um, there's lots of research on on variation by gender, and and certainly some research uh, on variation with age. Also, it, it's hard to to generalize. So, um, I, I can talk about some specific examples. Um, I've got a colleague here, Linda Babcock, who's done a lot of research on uh, gender uh, uh, influences on negotiation behavior. Um, and one thing that she's found is that men are just more comfortable asking for for something in a negotiation than for women. So like men are more comfortable asking for a higher salary than than women are. Um, and at the same time, this is this is not just just a gender difference, but this is in part of social norms. So it's also that when men ask for something in a negotiation, they're viewed, sort of positively as, you know, they're confident, they're seeking out what they deserve. Sometimes when women ask for the same things, they're viewed as being, you know, not as nice or, or not as, as friendly or something. Um, and and it, it is a kind of double standard, um, but it's a, a hard thing to get around. So it's, it's both, there's a difference in maybe natural inclinations, but then there's also a difference in how men and women are expected to behave and um, sometimes not following um, uh, norms about how you're expected to behave can help, but in a lot of cases you can get some kind of uh, social reprobation for that. And how does age play into the equation? Um, I, I think age, it, it probably interacts with a lot of other things. So, I mean, starting with, with children, um, children are, are still, still sort of learning what social norms are. Um, and you know, how they're supposed to behave, and and then maybe by the same token, maybe they uh, get a few um, exceptions if they don't follow social norms. You can say, oh, that's just a child; they don't know any better. Um, you reach a certain age, and you're sort of expected to to know the social norms, and and if you don't follow social norms, um, that's viewed as like a conscious decision. Um, so it, it's viewed as you're trying to to send a message um, by by being different. Um, and then you get to, to older age and there may be some, some differences in cognitive abilities where um, it can be, um, you know, harder to, to remember things or um, harder to, to focus on a decision maybe. Um, and what about right in the middle? Somebody who is, you know, in, in the, the middle of their career, their, maybe their kids are on their way in in college. I know that a lot of our listeners are, are in that bracket, and I find myself being being one of those people that the older I get, the less I care so much about the social norms, not in terms of um, doing the right thing. Of course, I always want to do the right thing, and I do want to be liked and cared about, etc., but I'm more apt to speak my mind and go against the stream with what's trending because it aligns with my beliefs. Yeah, I, I mean... Certainly, certainly, if you think about, you know, stereotypically, you think like teenagers are very concerned with what their peers think of them. And then, you know, I, I could speak about my grandma who doesn't seem to care at all about what, what people think of her anymore. She's just going to say what she thinks. Um, How old's your grandma? She's 95 now. <laughs> she's entitled. Yes. <laughs> Not to care. <laughs> um, I, I, I'd also say that, that there's, there's research that um, after some point in middle age, um, people generally report uh, higher levels of happiness as they get older. Um, yes, so, so the U-curve, right? That's the U-curve study. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so, so despite, you know, you might think that, that getting old has health problems or something, people are generally pretty happy as they get older. I, I don't know about all the causes, but I wouldn't be surprised if part of it is, you know, a comfort with the self and not being so concerned with what other people think about you that you can say what you you think and that you can 
um, maybe distinguish what are called sort of injunctive norms, um, where it's like, this is like what you're supposed to do from the just kind of like the social norms that like, these are just the things that everybody does, but nobody's really going to care if, if you don't do it also. Um, so, you know, if you want to, if you want to eat dessert, um, before dinner, nobody's going to, you know, people may, may judge something about that, but nobody's going to say you've harmed them, right? That's not an injunctive social norm. That's just, you'd be doing something a little different, but if, hey, if it makes you happy, then, then who's to stop you? Yeah, I, I I definitely hear you. Talk about how we buy a little bit and, and maybe how that breaks down generationally. Like I know that I have um, young adults and they see something on TV or they see something in social media that sort of strikes their fancy. They immediately want to buy that thing, right? It really grabs them and their impulsivity. And maybe that's because their prefrontal cortexes are not completely developed. Their impulsivity uh, sets in. And then for older people, they see something that might really interest them and, and, and a healthy mind might say, oh, you know, that's kind of a sexy object. I might like to have that thing, but they won't leap and buy. Uh -huh. And when you're talking about sort of economics and marketing, how does that, how does that all work? Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of research on what's called present bias. Um, which is this idea that that people are sort of overly focused on the present and neglect the future, um, and um, that is thought perhaps to relate to all kinds of like uh, behaviors where people succumb to temptation. So it could be, you know, I buy something without thinking about, um, you know, is this gonna gonna stop me from spending on something that's more important in the future, um, or it could be, you know. People maybe overeating, um, even though they'd really like to to think about their diet and and be healthier in the future. Sort of in the moment, the the temptation is just hard to resist. Um, and I, economists have sort of traditionally thought of um, this kind of impulsivity as as being related to just how much people care about the present versus the future. But I think there's now some behavioral economists who are thinking that there's also a strong element of just how how real the, the present feels compared to the future. And so when something is right there in front of you and it's real, it can be awfully tempting. And if you could just sort of get yourself out of that hot state um, and into sort of like a, um, a different kind of mental state where you're able to just reflect a little bit more dispassionately, um, you might very quickly feel feel differently. Um, the so, hot state. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I've, I've got a, a colleague here, George Lowenstein, who's, who's written a lot about this hot cold empathy gap. Um, and it's like when you're in this hot state, you find it sort of very hard to remember what it was like to be sort of cool and collected. And by the same token, when you're sort of cool and collected, it's very hard to imagine what it's like to be facing temptation right there and, and dealing with something that, that you know, is, is very exciting or that, that um, evokes some other kind of emotion. Let's talk for a second about how that trends along with civility or the lack of it. You know, we see a lot of what's going on in the media, in the political climate, even in um, a rise of hate crimes. How does this all tap into what you're researching? Um, well, I'm, I'm very interested in, in how people decide to treat each other. Um, so. It, it, I think it, it's it's hard to understand what's what's going through someone's head when they when they do something like a hate crime. Um, um, and I, I think even in kind of more ordinary incivility, I mean, even even we have 
um, politicians who will say um, things that that other people find offensive or, or find hateful, um, and it, it's it's hard to know in some cases why why somebody is going to disregard other people's um, emotions. It, I mean, it, it, when when you look at, at, at it's happening in politics, I think part of it is that there are actually some some rewards for um, making certain groups um, appear to be outsiders. Um, and it's a way of sort of targeting um, a particular kind of voter and saying, you know, I'm one of you, I'm not one of this other group. Uh, but but when you get to something like hate crimes, it really seems like it's hard to see, you know, what a benefit is to um, to to doing something like this. So, um, you know, economists were usually thinking, like, if somebody does something, it must have been to maximize their utility. Um, it must have been that, that they had some reason to do it, some some goal they were striving for. Um, and and in situations like this, it's like you can try to tell a story about, um, you know, they thought that, that they were standing up for for people like them or something. And and um, they had this view that the world is very zero sum. Um, but I think it becomes hard to really understand what, what goes through someone's head when they do something like that. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with to learn more about the research that Russell's doing at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University. Um, there is a huge, long link, website link, um, but I'm just going to ask you to go to www.cmu.edu, that's carnegiemellonuniversity.edu, and look for Russell Goleman, G-O-L-M-A-N, and you'll find the work that he is doing there, all about the research. Here comes the break. By the way, there's no Twitter and Facebook, and we're going to talk about that when we come back as well. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back continuing my conversation with Professor Russell Goldman. We're talking about digital declarations and social media realities, communicating with civility in the ethers and beyond. So prior to the break, we were talking about a bunch of different things, talking about how we make our decisions based on identity, following social norms, whether wanting people to like us, and about caring for others. So, Russell, let's talk a little bit about these horrific events that have happened on both 
coasts recently. You are in Pennsylvania. You had mass shootings there. I'm in California. We had, uh, within a few days, I think it was, uh, a mere type of incident here. Then we had these horrendous fires here, which um, we were in the midst of. And you, you and I have both kind of made some observations. And I want to hear yours because you're the professional. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, this is just sort of an ordinary observation. Nothing required a lot of expertise. But but I, I'm here in Pittsburgh, just maybe about a mile away from from where the shooting took place here, um, and the the community really did come together uh, afterwards. And so um, we've got you know just lots of people who have um, been leaving flowers by the the synagogue where the shooting occurred. Um, lots of people. Um, sort of expressing sympathy, just sort of saying, you know, do you know anybody um, who was hurt? Um, and, and everybody knows somebody who knew somebody. Um, so so in our Carnegie Mellon community, one of the victims was the, the wife of a former professor here. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just one person who can, um, you know, cause so much hurt and, and damage, but then it's a whole community that really comes together and, and does express with their words and their actions too how much they care about each other here. And it's um, the Pittsburgh community is really a, a wonderful place to live. It's a really nice community where people do care about each other. And I'm seeing the same thing here. You know, we're separated by nearly uh, 3,000 miles. And um, Malibu, were, which suffered the fires in the Thousand Oaks area, it's a, it's a generally an affluent area, and people are pretty independent going about their day. And some might say that, that even though there's a bit of entitlement, it still is a, is a community. And after both of these tragedies, people really rallied, and, they, and the, their, their money uh, went where their mouths were. You know, people were, you know, sending resources in. Um, it was about paying for someone's meal if you saw that they didn't have a lot or they were displaced from um, the fires or uh, affected by the shootings. So there really was this coming together. And f for me, from my view, it taps into, you know, post-traumatic growth when you're able to take a, a terrible situation and be positively transformed by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, I, I obviously everyone wishes that that there's something more they could do to to prevent this from happening. Um, but but just having that kind of social support, I think, means a lot to people. Um, it's just much easier to get through difficult times when when you know that there are other people who care about you and and who want to help. I, I, it's been very comforting here. I mean, I'm, I'm, we have not been affected directly. We haven't been living in the fires, and thank goodness we were not in the midst of the shootings. But within a 10-mile radius, both of those things occurred, and the communities are devastated. And in, in the case of fire, it's quite apocalyptic, right? People have lost everything. Their yeah. homes, their baby photos, their memorabilia, the things that actually do matter in making up one's identity. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, prior to the break, I mentioned that you don't have social media, and I don't mean that, that you're living in a cave and not connected to the outside world. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> I, I, I do spend a lot of my time on the internet, I'll admit that. Yeah, but but there's a, a conscious decision, and I think that is um, trending amongst many of us to be more judicious in the use of social media. Yeah, and, and I, I think there's, there's, there's two dimensions of this. So I think one that a lot of people 
are beginning to think about is um, this issue of like, what do you post to social media? And that when you post something on social media, it's going to sort of be there permanently. And, and, you know, do you want to be concerned with, with this like image that, that you're creating that is going to be hard to get rid of? Um, there's a lot of work on sort of privacy preferences. I think as, as a, um, as an economist, um, you, you might say people's behavior sort of reflects their preferences and people seem awfully comfortable just putting themselves out there and um, not being so concerned with privacy preferences. And I think um, to me, it's it's not privacy preferences that keep me wary of social media. I'm, I'm, I'm fine if other people know something about me. Um, it's actually the flip side, which is that I find it um, to be a maybe uncomfortable temptation to be um, sort of reading about what the, my sort of uh, weak acquaintances are doing um, in messages that weren't intended specifically for me. Um, so so I, I've often known friends who will get very caught up in, say, reading about what their exes are doing on Facebook, and it just seems like a very unhealthy kind of habit. To, to um, It's natural to have this kind of social curiosity about people who you've once cared about. Um, and for that matter, to have the same kind of social curiosity about people who you've just met and don't know much about um, yet. Um, but but I'd rather sort of get to know people in um, a more sort of direct personal conversation. Um, and so I certainly am comfortable with using social media in um, you know one-to-one -one communication. Um, it's the the one-to-many communication that, that I feel like I want messages that are meant for me, and I want to customize what I'm telling to my audience. So I'm going to tell different things to. Um, my best childhood friend, and I just want to tell for to anybody who just happened to just meet me. Yeah, I, and I think it's something that many of us are questioning. You know, when social media first started, and don't forget, like I'm an old person, right? I'm a, I'm a mother of um, young adult children, so I was much more active because it was such a shiny new object. It was so curious to be able to hook up with people and hook up in the grown up sense, not. <laughs> Not the other sense um, that I hadn't seen in, you know, 20 or 30 years. I mean, that was just amazing. And then it got to the place where it had the ability to take one away from one's presence. So rather than connect, it was a time sucker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, I have little kids and I'll, I'll take them to the library or something. And, you know, looking around at some of the other parents uh, there at the library, um, it's very easy to get sucked into the phone. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do it myself too. I, I, I won't deny that. Um, but it's, it, it, you do lose something when you're not present with your kids, with your friends, with your husband or wife. Um, so, so, um, the ability to, to connect to people who, who you no longer live in the same neighborhood with is, is tremendously valuable. Um, but you certainly want to make sure that you're connecting with the people that you are living with also. Uh, agreed. And I wanted to also go back to about the hot mind and, and um, impulsivity, because we talked about that in the previous segment. And it also dawned on me that um, a lot of young people today, because I work with a lot of young people in my practice, I see a lot of hopelessness. You know, that there's not the same value of the future as there once was. Hmm. Um. I, I don't know if, if I've seen as much of that. I, I wonder if, if that's in part um, when you're, you're um, dealing with, with people who are, who are trying to deal with the uh, traumatic stress. Um, I think that's a natural reaction. Um, but but I, I think 
as a whole, our, our, um, the, like the, the young generation does seem, um, I think, quite, quite confident in their ability to, to create change in the world. Um, and ah. In some sense, I, I think we're living in, in um, one of the most prosperous times ever. So, so I don't think there's anything to be hopeless about right now. I agree, and but I think you hit the nail on the head that that we're in one of the most hopeful times to create change. But I think for some young people, the hopelessness comes from seeing their parents and their grandparents who have been very prosperous, and then perhaps viewing that they could never get there, that 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 the economy is uh, in such a place that they could never attain um, the comforts that they've become used to on their own. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I and and certainly, um, I, I I think I think in reality, um, like like economic mobility is actually quite difficult. I, so, I, I mean, part of it is is um, I think the overall level of of our uh, economic growth. Um, sorry, I, I think like the overall level of like economic like production, like the amount of um, of goods that you can buy at the store at affordable prices it's it's i think we're doing quite well in that regard um but in the sense of like a, a more relative like a social mobility on an economic basis um i think there's actually very very little ability for people who grow up poor to to make it and, and really become wealthy um, yeah. um and there's there's maybe um, other dimensions of happiness that that we have a lot of equality on. Um, so I don't think happiness is just about about wealth, but but certainly just being able to um, to to feel like you have economic opportunity um, is, is an important ingredient in, in happiness. I agree. Well, we we know that money can only buy a certain level of happiness, right? That it's really about the basic basic needs and feeling that the uh, that one has a secure base. Yeah, and yeah that's beyond a, that, right. right? The billionaire is not a billion times more happy than the average Joe. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it so doesn't we, work like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so you you might say that that money doesn't buy happiness, but uh, you know, an absence of money could create some unhappiness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there, there is so much material here and I want to I want to hang out more and talk about it. So maybe you'll just come back and we'll do more. But the bottom line is, you know, that, that actions do speak louder than words. And we're talking about, um, you know, how we behave and how it relates to our not only our happiness, but our collective welfare. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up this idea that, that actions speak louder to words. Um, speak louder than words it comes back to to what we were saying before about um knowing that that other people uh care about you um and and you know showing that you care about other people and and really i think it's it's more than just what you say but it's it's what you do um and and you know i, I think you know w w one idea here is that um you know maybe we're sometimes very concerned about how other people are are, are viewing us and maybe so much to the fault that, you know, when, when you get to be um, my grandmother's age, you can just say what you want and feel good about it. But the flip side is that, um, you know, we, it's natural to care about social relationships and they do make us happy. And so to the extent that you can show other people that you care, you actually can, um, can contribute to their happiness. And so we're sort of always going around um, judging other people because it's sort of a natural way to decide who is it that, that we're going to care about um, and, you know, it's like you don't have time for everybody. So, so you're naturally trying to figure out 
who are the people in your life that matter to you. And in general, they're not what's living out there in the ether, you know, on the on the on the uh, inter internet. It's really about the people that are next door and dear to your heart, and that's what it's all about. You know, it's the connection. And in 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 my view, in my experience, you know, that at the end of the day, that that is that thing. And when people talk about identity and how we want to be known or how we want to be remembered, I think showing up scores the highest mark. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, just, just. There's a lot that can be transmitted in person, um, certainly, and, and you know, just like simply sharing an experience with somebody, simply looking into their eyes, um, and sort of knowing that you're there for them, that that can matter a great deal for happiness. Well, I think that's that's currency unto itself, the yep. most precious kind. To learn more about the research of Professor Russell Goldman, please head over to Carnegie Mellon. That's C mu.edu and in the search bar put russell hyphen goldman and you'll get to his work thank you so much russell i so appreciate you hanging out with me yeah this has been fun thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness this is lisa cypress cayman and my guest today luvi ajayi and professor russell goldman wishing you kind thoughts kinder words and the kindest of actions until next time remember happiness is an inside job Happiness is your inside job. Stay safe and joyful. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks for listening. <laughs>